0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by that mincing rascal, Tinyumi, a.k.a. Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy?
1: Mincing, mincing, mincing as ever. Doing yeah. a lot of mincing these days. And being rascally. <laughs> I try.
0: So Jeremy,
1: are, are you familiar at all with China files? Uh, uh, a little bit, file, yes. China, uh, files. China files, yeah. Right. Italian and Spanish. Writings on yeah, China.
0: Yeah, it's, right? it's, it's a news bureau um, that's, you know, for European languages other than English, like, you know, Spanish and Italian, I think is what they have so far. They've um, sought, I guess, to, to sort of challenge the dominant anglo-american media narrative um and uh, i think they've done a very good job at, in doing that anyway i was at a party not very long ago and there were some reporters talking to me about um some fascinating interviews uh with a man from peru who had come to china in 1978 and has been here ever since and uh his daughter who was a reporter for the associated press well since there was only one peruvian woman i know who works for the associated press I said oh that must be sold and uh i pinged her on facebook read the interviews but I knew that I, I certainly had, to, to, I've had the, the reason that I've been looking for to finally get Isolde on our show. So today we are delighted to welcome Isolde Murillo, uh, whose fascinating life has taken her from Peru to China to France to New York to Cuba and back to Beijing for, for the last seven years, I guess. She's been doing both print and video reporting for AP. Great to have you on the show, Isolde. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Um, I guess I want to start just talking about the work that you do now. Um, I, I did a quick Google News search on your name just yesterday, and I, I looked up some of the stories that you filed recently. And um, you wrote, for instance, about Chengguang's Guang's release, about the detention the of Guo Jian. Uh, is it fair to say that you are now the main activist, dissident, critical intellectual <laughs> no, <laughs> reporter? No, that's for the not idea.
2: fair. <laughs> okay. That's not fair. I am. Uh, I only work on uh, non-sensitive issues. No oh, right. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> No, well, but I guess, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's something that you end up doing, you know, like covering. I mean, as a, as a foreign reporter, That's right. you know, it's part of what we pay attention to. So I guess, you, you mean, I mean, um, I do other stories, too, uh-huh. but uh, probably you can't find them. Right. <laughs> because, yeah, <no. laughs> and uh, I also do some other, st- like other stories for, like, TV, and they are more, like, feature stories, and they're not on dissidents or, you know, activism or
0: so you uh, you're one of the few uh reporters in Beijing who's working kind of in, in not in your native language. I, I remember reading in that interview uh that you did with Guillermo Bravo of China Files um about the the obstacles that you encounter in your work. I mean, not just because you're working uh in a language that isn't your native language, but also as a Latina as a Peruvian as a woman here in the bureau. Can you you talk a little bit about what what, what that's like?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, when you know, I after you know many years, like when I came back to China, uh, I wanted to work in journalism, and I started with Spanish TV, mm-hmm. and uh, I was working there and doing reports in Spanish, but they didn't have much play. Like most, you know, it was just got, got lost, kind of. You know, we did interesting stories, but sometimes they were played at midnight in in Madrid, you know. So and uh, people really didn't notice. So I realized. Then you know that the only way to have like an impact in you know in um, in covering the news was to work for Anglo-Saxon media. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how you know I switched to you know where I work now, AP. And uh, so, but it was you know English is not my native language, and I've been to New York and I studied in, in New York several th- like twice, but um, I never felt. Like completely comfortable, you know, to like to write or to like to use it on a like everyday basis. So but it was like a learning process for me, you know, but I realized also that was the only way, you know, also the I think the Anglo-Saxon media has more resources.
0: Yes, you know,
2: to work like we can work on daily basis, you know, like on very important stories. Uh, Whereas in other, you know, even in French, you know, even languages like French. I know my French friends, the reporters, they don't have that, you know, big of a budget to travel. And here, I think Anglo-Saxon media pays much more attention to Right.
0: They well-resourced a lot of people so you can actually divide up beats. Uh, Yes. Right. How do you divide your time between print and, and, and video media?
2: Well, it's not. You know, it's not like a fixed thing. Okay. It's, uh, it depends more on the, sometimes like uh, on, like, for example, if I go somewhere and I'm not the only one there, you know, if I'm doing a story and I was supposed to do a video story, but I'm on, the only one there, there's not a text reporter. So I end up doing the whole story, like, you know, the video story and the text. And you'll story. file in text. And, well. um, and also some, you know, it just depends on if you build up the contacts in that, particular you know area that so i end up it's the all story.
1: can i ask i mean you you say anglo-saxon media mm. uh, which is a slightly different way of putting it from i think i would have said english media mm. english language media yes. do you mean something else aside from the language when you refer to anglo-saxon media are you to- talking also about a certain attitude towards news and not just in english but it's england and america and australia or mm. w- what is it exactly that you're you're talking about a particular style of reporting
0: or...
2: Yes, of course. I think, well, you know, in, with... I mean, with AP, there's, of course, there's a very particular style of reporting, you know, and it's, like, very matter-of-fact. It's, like, it's an agency as well, you know? Right, of course. So it's actually probably... It's the closest thing to, like, a local media in a way. You know, only with English. Do you understand? It's, like... Because we report daily. Right. A lot of the other media, I mean, they they do features and once a, once a week, twice a week. Mm-hmm. And we are we are almost doing... You know reporting every day and anglo-saxon what i what i mean um of course i think there the interest of the anglo-saxon world towards china is different than you know latin american or the french it's, i think there's a different the topics are different they're more interested in politics more interested in uh, like human rights there's as, you know i think if you read the uh spanish like the Spanish-speaking mm-hmm. media, they do very different reports.
0: How would you characterize the, the, the say, I, I don't know how many people there are here from Latin American bureaus or from, uh, from Spain. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, but how would you characterize that difference? Do they do more economic stories? or
2: I think from Latin America, probably a lot, of, a lot more economic stories. From Spain, it's a little bit different. They have more human rights but for example, I think in Latin America, people don't pay no attention to Tibet, for example. Right. You know, it's, they know very little about Tibet or, mm-hmm. you know, or even like the Communist Party. You know, it's more like bilateral trade, you know, right. con- economics, things like that. Um, and, so, uh, yeah.
0: you, you've had a, a really fascinating life. You actually first came to China in 1980 when you were, you were still quite a young girl, right? Mm, yeah. Is that correct? Um, can you can you tell us the circumstances that brought you over here? I think your father came over here beforehand. Is that right? Yeah.
2: Well, me, my father was invited to teach in China, and uh, he he told uh, my mother, you know, he's like because both of them had like you know had jobs in the university. Mm-hmm. So in Lima. in Lima. In Lima, yeah. My father. Well, he was also a journalist. He had like a part-time job as a, you know as a journalist and also teaching. So. You know, when he was invited to teach at the uh, wai you know, uh, literature, he thought it was like a unique opportunity to come to China and to, to see firsthand what was going on. And, but at the same time, it was hard not to leave everything. So he came over. He said, OK, he told my mother, I'll go there. I'll check, you know, how is, how, how's life there? And, uh, and then, you know, if things are OK, you can come. So he came over, and uh, he lived in the Friendship Hotel. And at that time, it was this sort of like a little paradise, you know, a little bit. is completely isolated from everything sure. else. Yeah. So And life was very easy. So my father was kind of contrasting between the stress he had in Lima, you know, also being a journalist. It was just the end of the military. There was a military go- government. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of – and he, my father is a writer. He writes novels. So he realized here he was working, you know, eight hours a week or ten hours a week, and he had <laughs> a lot of time to write, and he felt, oh, this is perfect. So, so then that's how. That
0: does not hurt. Were his politics left? Of, Sorry, of, were did he have leftist politics in Peru? Or
2: I think, yeah, I mean, I think in in Latin in Peru, you know, at that time there were, there there has been always this sort of you know search for what type of uh, ideology you know w- could be good for peru because peru has been you know has lived through a lot of chaotic years so i think yeah he had some you know left ideas but at the same time everything he knew was from you know from publications you know not like you know he, there were very few people that came to China. Right. So I think uh, news about China or Russia or things arrived to Peru, but always it was like through bulletins or books and things. So, yeah. So that's and how. and
0: he, he actually is from a, a very small village in the Andes. Is mm. that correct?
2: No, not from the Andes. Near the Amazon. Oh, near yeah. the Amazon, actually. Yeah.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: Yeah. No, but it's... Actually, my father is half Chinese.
0: Ah, yeah. right. I heard. I remember reading that. So your your maternal grandmother was Chinese. Oh, your I'm sorry. Your paternal
1: grandmother yes. was. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay. And, uh,
2: and yeah. how,
1: how did how did she arrive uh, in Peru?
2: No, because you know, like there were uh, people that were sent to uh, Peru to work in the plantations in sugar sugarcane plantations. So my great grandfather was one of those, and he arrived with his daughter and probably more people that didn't survive. We have no idea. Um, and then he arrived, and he what he realized he was being sold as a slave to work in the sugar cane fi- uh, sugarcane fields oh gosh. he said, "Okay, this is not for me, so he ran away, and he ran to this small town and uh like you know like really like almost yeah it 's almost near the amazons, so there he my father no my grandmother married a local peruvian, and that 's how my father you know, but for my father, he never realized his mother was Chinese.
0: Really? No, if because she
2: it. blended in. Right. And she was, she after she married, she started, you know, she was, she lost her culture. So... Anyways. And and
1: physically, you have people who sort of re- resemble Chinese people in, in, in that in part of family? Peru. Yeah. No, no, or I in mean that, in, in Peru. Yes, in yes, yeah, I mean, much so yeah. so appearance-wise, yeah. it wasn't like something that was no, obvious. No. She looks really different from everybody else. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. She
2: looked like the local people. Mm. So... So yeah.
0: So wow. you you came here in 1980 and uh I, I imagine that it was it was quite uh difficult for you to it, it, it assimilate there w- wasn't the kind of uh sort of what um, infrastructure here uh for teaching foreign students Chinese I don't imagine um or you know what was your school situation you you actually were uh, what maybe Twelve or thirteen years old mm. at the time, and
2: yeah, no. What what happened was I finished primary school in Peru, uh-huh. and uh, um, so and it was kind of initially was like a temporary arrangement. You know, we were go- we were only going to stay here for a few years and then leave. So my parents said, okay, you know, if you're going to stay here, just let's learn the language. So I, my parents sent me to a Chinese school, and uh, and I which changed- school. Yes, yeah, so I went to the C Xi Xiaoxue, you know, a school near the Friendship Hotel where some foreigners were, and uh, but I couldn't understand Chinese, of course, and also I was much older. I was put in the like first year, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I was with all the children, you know, like, and I was already bigger, so then we tried uh, Fanzhoudi oh, for right. a few months, and then I went to a Chinese uh, middle school.
0: Okay. How good was your Chinese by the time you finished it, the, the Chinese middle school?
2: No, it, I didn't finish. Okay. I didn't finish. I Because I switched like two or three schools. Mm-hmm. I couldn't adapt. And uh, I was always very, you know, and also at that time, all the children, you know, w- wore the same clothes, you know, like, and they were all told to wear like short hair and they wanted to cut my hair. And uh, they, they didn't want me to wear, I had a, like a red jacket. They didn't want me to wear the red jacket. And so... I always fought with, you know, the teachers and uh, I didn't. Yeah. And then they always put me in a corner saying and always saying, like, you know, don't 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 be like her, you know, because I, I wanted to keep my long hair. Right. And uh, I, I just,
0: understand how you feel. <laughs> <about that. laughs>
2: yeah. No, that's why probably why I still have like the long hair, you know, anyway. So then I switched to two or three schools and uh, in the end, I realized I it was just too hard. And uh, so I, I stayed at home for a while and then I left. And I went to the U.S.
0: And you went to the U.S. and you studied uh, art there. Is that correct? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I actually, I didn't want to study art. When I left, I was supposed to just, you know, try and find a school and I was with some friends of my parents. And uh, one thing I realized after, you know, when I arrived to New York was I didn't speak proper Spanish. I didn't speak proper English. I didn't speak proper Chinese. And I was like, what am I going to do? I don't speak any language, you know, properly. (laughs) So, When I went to enroll in schools, like high schools or, you know, like a for college, I couldn't understand anything. So I I was like, uh, maybe I should do something that doesn't require language. (laughs) And uh, so that's how I enroll in art. I went to the art school and I saw everyone just drawing and painting. And I said, this is for me because I don't need to speak to anyone. I don't need to listen to, you know, memorize things, text or anything. So that's how I started, you know. So how did you get
1: from that status, that situation, to a career in journalism where everything is about language?
2: I think that it's probably because of that. It was a big frustration. Language was, for me, a big frustration. Um, After I left New York, I went to Peru. And when I I started studying for college and language was a huge problem, like Spanish language, Um, I I realized I had a much harder time than most of the other students. And because I lacked like, you know, six years in between of Spanish language you know learning. Mm. So it's been a huge frustration. And then after, you know, I came back to China, I was like, I want to master like my own language. I want to master Chinese and I want to learn English. And anywhere I go, I want to learn that language.
0: (laughs) But in in between, after the United States, you spent some time in Cuba. Is that right?
2: I came back here and then I went to Cuba many years later. Okay, yes.
0: just fill out the timeline. So you, you came back here first to China and that was in the nineties. So... Yeah, in the
2: nineties. Yeah. Okay,
0: it's like to India. do what?
2: No, I just came to visit my parents.
0: Just to hang out. Right.
2: I just came to visit my parents and uh, you know a lot. I mean, I found a job and anyway.
0: I... That was like in the early. I think that's probably when we met. Nineties, yeah. The first it was time, in right. 90, I don't know, yeah. mid nineties. And then and then uh, you went to, to Cuba that's 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 very interesting I'd really love to hear about that I mean, because of you know the contrast. You know, having lived in one communist party state uh, what was it like living in one of the other vanishingly few number of, of, of communist party states after the, the, the end of the Cold War
2: yeah well you know the thing is like um, when I lived in Peru there is also a lot of left you know, like left-wing people into college where I went to. And there was always this sort of ideal, you know, that maybe, you know, some like socialism or, you know, could bring change to societies like, you know, like Peru or China. Or, but I had lived in China and I, I kind of felt maybe there were things that were not working. So, and I wasn't sure whether it was because of the culture or it was because of the system, of the political system. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to see Cuba. I was maybe something culturally will make this type of system work differently, you know.
0: So, so there's still something in you that was sympathetic to the ideas of of marxism or No. No, not at all. No. Uh, no,
2: I mean, no, I don't think that's that that's 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 simplifying. Okay. No, I was curious. And what did uh, it you was do more there? Curiosity. As all that? Sorry?
0: What did you do there in Cuba?
2: No, I mean, I think yeah, I mean for me it's it's always been like a, you know a matter of, you know, just following up your question It's like a ma- it's in, you know how because when you live in China, you realize that politics is everywhere in a way, and it kind of you know marks your life, right? Mm-hmm. It marks how you how you live your life, you know, your privacy, how you dress, even. So I was always been very interested in politics and always very interested in how governments work, not only in China but in the U.S. And so I was very interested in seeing like you know how Cuba will will be, not necessarily because I was sympathetic, but just curiosity, and um, so. I slowly, you know, through the years, I started developing this interest for film, and uh, there is a, there's one I think it's one of the most important schools in, of film in Latin America, in Cuba, Mm -hmm. and uh, that was, you know, it was built by Garcia Marquez actually, you know, because uh, he said, you know, he studied. Um, He was like a a script writer. He studied script writing first before becoming a writer, but he was not a very good one. (laughs) So he said um, that Latin America needed a film school because we didn't have one. So he said, I need to build a school for Latin America, you know, like a film school for all these filmmakers and all these people. And Castro at that time, like in the 70s or 80s, maybe 80s, 80s, yeah, said, "Uh, I'll give you a land. I'll give you a place and you can build your school here. You know, you find the money to build a school and, you know, I'll give you a place. So that's how the, the school was. And it's called like the International School for, you know, the International Latin American School of Film and TV. So, so I went there.
0: What did you decide? Was it the culture? Was it the inherent problems with, with the communist system? Or was, was, was Cuba as fucked up as China?
2: Actually, I, become, I became more puzzled, you know, because a lot of the problems were very similar, You know, like with the censorship, Mm -hmm. the mix of public spaces and and private spaces, you know, and also the bureaucracy and uh, the, you know, I also felt that there was this sort of elite, like political elite who had more privileges than most people. And that was very, you know, you could see it was poignant.
0: What was the view among your fellow students, your fellow film students in Havana about the the reforms that were then underway in china
2: they had no idea
0: they had they were they had no idea
2: because there was no internet i mean when i was there there's no internet i you know I, in, at school we had like a uh, an account to go into like a mail thing like a mail you can write emails but you couldn't um
1: no web surfing
2: no yeah no web surfing mm. and uh so they had no information of anything,
1: and people weren't listening to like shortwave radio, BBC World Service. or No, it kind was very
2: hard, and ah. because first of all, most people didn't have like uh, you know computers, and uh, right. it was really hard to find. I remember which you know,
1: year? Which year was this exactly? It was uh,
2: uh, two thousand already. Oh, like, okay, so yeah, not two thousand. Yeah, wow. two thousand and I don't know one or yeah, around two thousand and i yeah people didn't and i remember if i wanted to buy you know like foreign newspapers i had to go to a special hotel oh like, it was
1: like china was when yeah in the and 90s i remember even. and then yeah. you
2: get like you know like the new york times from like four days ago or like a week ago <laughs> you know like things <laughs> like that for
1: five dollars yes yeah. very expensive yeah.
2: and so and most people had no idea you know of mm. what was going on outside and only a few i remember because uh There was all these things about, you know, like people had a lot of, you know, like, I have a friend that if you pay $20, then they could give you, like, internet connection, you know, they can get you internet connection and things like that. So I remember going to some people's homes and they told me, oh, this is the son of the minister of culture and he has internet, you know. Mm. And so, but most people didn't have, like, any.
0: I mean, when they learned that you had spent time in China, uh, were they at all curious about what life was like in, in this other last remaining communist party state
2: no i think i what my feeling of most you know that first like they were very isolated from the rest of the world and second that they have like they had a lot of interest in the u.s Right, because most of their you know the people that left cuba went to the u.s so they only had like information from the u.s when they when their relatives or friends came back from the u.s so no, there was no. Very few people knew, knew. You know, like they knew that China. Oh, they knew the bikes. All oh, right, <laughs> the bicycles. I remember because they told me, oh yes, yes, we have a lot of Chinese bicycles, because during the crisis, you know, they didn't have enough oil, so the government bought a lot of bikes. So there was a lot of Chinese bikes in the streets. So they knew about the bikes.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like the, you know, I suppose that that kind of good. ignorance isn't just attributable to censorship. I mean, I remember going back to uh, my home country of South Africa. It must have been in 1998 after I'd been here um, three years and meeting a friend of a friend uh, who heard I was in Beijing and then immediately said, Oh, Hong Kong. Oh, the handover! Things must be getting a bit jumpy around there, and it was just the most like ridiculous comment. He sort of didn't really know the difference between Hong Kong and China, and had this idea that the handover had taken place, and therefore there was going to be a war or something. Mm. I mean, you know, and South Africa at that time was not uh, mm. the media wasn't censored. You know, yeah. people just didn't give a shit. They essentially, were just no. idiots. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah. No, yeah, I guess, no, it, not, not only censorship. And also I think people, you know, at that time, I mean, when I was there, people were very uh, kind of surviving, trying to survive.
1: Not good economic times. No,
2: no, no. It was, it was not pretty good. hard back then. Yeah, I mean. so, Yeah, after the and collapse And uh, food the... was really bad. Sorry to say that, but it was, I mean, I love Cuba, but food was really bad. And you had to pay a lot of money in order to get, like, food.
1: Hey, food used to be really bad in China and they got yeah. the greatest no, cuisine remember, in the world. Like I, so, I, I mean, I, if you I don't was, have enough money, right? When I
2: was studying there, I was like... The first time I was very happy, you mm. know? And then when I came back in for holidays, uh, I was like, my God, it was just really hard because, the, you know, they eat a lot of beans and rice mm. and it's like very little fruits. And mm. you will not, you know, imagine that. You would think that you will eat a lot of fish mm. or fruits and vegetables, but there they they weren't that many. So...
1: Or, or are they being exported?
2: No, I think it was something... Uh, some Cuban friends told me that it had to do with the, uh, they had like mono, like, um, how do you call that, Mon- mono agriculture, you know, like a lot of sugar cane and a lot of... Uh, they just weren't growing. Yeah, they weren't stuff, growing though. and maybe some of them, yeah, was exported, you know, mm-hmm. like the the fruits. So, the yeah, it was, the food was not good. So, I, I think, there were, I remember when I was there, a lot of people talked about the it, one thing called inventions. Every time, like they said, for Cu- our, you know, for Cubans, we need to invent our life. You know? mm, so mm-hmm. they were always talking about, oh, what are we going to invent today? You know, so they will invent. So I had friends who invented, like you know, like with hard drives, like computer to try to edit because I, you know, we was we was I was learning film, right? And uh, so some of them had you know wanted to edit at home. And I went to their homes and, you know, saw these things that they invented and they put together, you know, with these hard drives and cables and things. It's amazing. And, <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember at that time thinking, you know, that China was much, much further ahead than, than they were, you know.
0: A lot of friends of mine who have been to Cuba always talk about the cars, that they have yeah. these cars from, you know, before. Cool old 50s yeah, cars. Yeah, 1950s that, that, that yeah. are still kept running. Yeah. It's just astonishing. No,
2: I mean, I think it's very colorful if you go as a tourist. But, you know, if you live there. But For it's people, it's not fun. You know, they they don't. It's very. You know, it's kind of this orient, orientalist view that we have. Oh, it's so cool. This old people park. living
1: in poverty. Exactly. <laughs> That's so you cute. Know? Oh, look, yeah. look at these <laughs> they lovely old, old cars. Yeah.
2: yeah, but actually, they hate it. I mean, they yeah. hate these cars, and they, you know, they, they, yeah, they hated all that. You know. Yeah, I a know? bit
1: like people feel about Husongs in Beijing. A lot of you know beijingers yeah sort of just as happy sure whether, being the fifth yeah. ring road in yeah. an apartment with a flush toilet and yeah. <laughs> heating i had the like winter. the
2: most dangerous like riots in cuba really. riots rights riots, riots like, oh, right riots. oh right like in because of those old cars you know like right. broke the car you know bro- breaking the down brakes aren't working in the middle of nowhere with rain and you know like and oh, it's just crazy <laughs> yeah so
0: so meanwhile, so, let's let's talk about your, so all this time that you were uh, in the U.S. and then Cuba, your parents were actually still here in Beijing. Yes, is that correct? Yes. Oh, what kept them here? What was I mean, um, Was was there some reason politically why they were unable to go back to no, Peru? No, or, no, or?
2: no, no. Well, no, because I think this is something that a lot of people have asked me. You know, whether my parents were political refugees or something like that, mm-hmm. and they weren't. So there's so many, you know, and also here, they were not weren't. like economical refugees. You know, because a lot of people would say, ah. Oh, you know, maybe they didn't... My, my, both my parents were, like, professors at right. the university in, in Lima. And they probably had, you know, like, uh, maybe, I don't know, better prospects in Peru. I think it was just, you know, very a lot of also related to the family because my sister was studying here. Okay. And she was happy. Mm-hmm. My sister went to, like, she did a whole Chinese, you know, like the middle school, high school, everything, and she went to Peita. So, in a way, my parents were kind of trying to keep that part of life stable and uh they 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 just you know stayed uh out of maybe how do you call that uh, uh, inertia Inertia, Inertia, in a way not completely not completely inertia i think politically probably inertia but on the other side my father for him writing is very important
0: and he still so, had that sweet gig where he only had to work eight hours a week and could, could write. Yeah, for the- yeah.
2: He for for him it was the best, you know. And also, I think uh, for someone who who's very dedicated, uh, you know, to uh, on writing, you know, it was perfect to be somewhere where he's there's no, you know, he was kind of isolated. So in a way, he's left alone, right? So he hmm. he can actually focus on writing. And he doesn't speak Chinese, so the interaction with the outside world is very little. So. And also, he always says that he always found China more safe, because when I lived in Peru, it was not safe; it was very violent.
0: Right? Yeah, the Cinderella Luminosa. Yes, and
2: I lived it. through all that. So, for my parents, they were they they thought, you know, because there's a lot of people died and disappeared, and so for them, it was like, I don't think we want to go back to that.
0: That's completely understandable. And so I, I, I remember in that interview that was done uh, in China Files, he talked about how he, he re- really never felt like he could integrate into Chinese society in any way. He was just always sort of at the margins here. Um, so and, and I, I, he, he was asked, do you feel more of an expatriate or almost an exile? How, how, how do you talk to your father about issues like that? And how does he, how does he respond?
2: I have spoken. Uh, yeah, we, it's, a, it's a very, it's a constant Mm-hmm. Questioned um, because I don't feel like we are expats I don't feel like an expat and I don't think my family is as an expat you know like people that are sent here with right. like an expat package and they and then they can be sent somewhere else and also the idea of expat is someone who kind of live in their own ghetto right. you know and they don't integrate and don't aim to integrate exile i think it's also an idea of like running away from something right Right. and And it's politically loaded it's politically loaded and it means also that you kind of left somewhere for for some political reason and you're taking refuge and it's but my family is neither of those they're not well how
1: about it because i feel the same i've never identified with expat either Uh, I, i like the word emigre what do you think of that
2: I sometimes say I'm an international uh, migrant worker.
1: <laughs> yes, that's definitely, especially <laughs> in Chinese migrant worker, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that. You know, yeah. I say I'm a yeah. Gucci migrant. That, uh, that applies to me, and it's less pretentious than emigre. All right. Immigrant. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I
0: don't know what the
2: hell
1: I am either. I don't know. I mean, I no, I mean, I, don't like I, I think
2: it's okay not to have a definition, right? Yeah. It's okay. I mean, and I think we are kind of a product of globalization in a way. You know, you kind yeah. of start, and also China opened up and they brought a lot of opportunities for different people. for oh, people absolutely. To, to kind of like come and, you know, and, and nose around and see. Mm. And we kind of found things to do.
1: Yeah, you we know, did. And, Amazing. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> Speaking of things to do, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, after working here for AP for seven years, surely you've thought about maybe writing a book about your experiences here. And have Have you given any thought to, to the book that all the journalists always write? Oh,
2: God. No, I think I have... Far too many things I don't want to tell people, so I can't write a <laughs> <laughs> book.
1: But, but you so, do have a, a natural angle. I mean, you're from Latin America. And yeah. And no, it actually, may be that Howard French has written the great China Africa book. Mm. Maybe you're but the But right Nobody's written to write. the great Latin America yeah. China book, right? Is that well, something you pay attention to, China and Latin America? Yes, of
2: course. Yeah. Of course, of course. No, I do. I am, well, I, I'm not, I don't want to say I want to write a book, but I think um, it's uh, needed. I think it's needed Absolutely, yeah. from that angle because I've read a lot of the uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxon uh, the you know all the literature mm-hmm. like all the books written by journalists. I mean, some of them are really good. You know, some of them are really help you understand China. And, um, but, but those books never get to Latin America, they never get to the Spanish market, mm-hmm. you, you'll never find translation of, you know, Howard French or whatever, all these other writers, you know, like that work in China have been here forever, the Jonathan Spencer, I mean, all these books, they never get to Latin America, so there's a lack of um, academic or, you know, uh, there's also very little schools that teach about China. So, like, contemporary studies or, or like, um, you know, history or sinology in general. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's needed. And I think if I do write a book, it will not be about myself or my life here. <laughs> it will be probably more, you know, maybe more about uh, what I have seen, you know, like the changes in China. Sure. Contemporary China, it, which is very hard to understand, actually. Yeah. Because I kind of always feel, you know, like we come here and it's kind of this movie that started long ago. Right. Right. It's kind of this movie started long ago and you come in the middle and you're trying to make sense of it. It's not that easy, you know, and that's contemporary China. So I think it, it will probably take me a few years more to understand. Well,
0: it's not just a movie. It's like this television series that's been going for a long time with all these multiple storylines and hundreds of characters. And right.
1: I, it, just, I just I just follow followed down. on Twitter. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: <clears throat> yeah. But don't you feel like that? Don't you feel like it's this sort of like you know you you come in in the middle and you're like what happened here and, and of I agree. Actually, I, I mm-hmm.
1: also think that 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 old sort of saw about like you know you can come to China for a month and you can write a book and you stay for five years and you can write an article and you stay for ten years and you can't even write a postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I feel that that is also an issue f- you if you get to know this though, place yeah. really really long unless you are somebody who's just okay i need to write a book then you can write a book tomorrow you know uh, we can yeah. put like the end of x china and just blah you yeah. know it's basically a powerpoint presentation what but if you want to say something meaningful um at some at some point knowing this place better almost makes it more difficult to say something that you might want to put in a book right yeah, Absolutely. yeah,
2: because I think you can make a lot of assumptions, you know, when you come. You real, I mean, I one of the thing, great things about being here is kind of you. it has helped me to go back and review uh, all my, you know, the baggage I have on me, like all my ideas, you know, my principles, my values, and see that maybe they're not so absolute, you know, that... Uh, I've come here with, you know, thinking, oh, democracy is a natural thing. Right. Right. Because, you know, even when I was in Peru, even I was born during the, you know, the um, military dictatorship. But people were fighting for democracy. And that was the aim. And uh, like free press, you know, uh, privacy. There's a lot of notions and values that are that. I was born with and that are part of my values, my tradition, my cultural baggage. And when you come here, you kind of suddenly, it's like you realize that maybe those things are not so absolute and there are other societies that can live with under other systems. So if you start analyzing China with your, you know, through those glasses, you know, through the, the glasses that you bring, you know, like all these values that you have, that you have inherited, then you, it's, kind of, it's very hard to understand. And you can make a lot of assumptions. That's right. And uh, in or, and and then when you start trying to understand China, then you get really puzzled. And it's very hard to to say, okay, I don't want to have the point of view of a Chinese person because I'm not. Or I don't, you know, you don't. And you still want to remain that, obser- like this sort of like partial observant. And it's not that easy, but... And also you want to see okay you you say you know you want to present these ideas to like a western
0: audience or readership right
2: And so you want to be able to kind of uh, how do you say communicate both you know communicate the traditional mm-hmm. chinese values and also to people who have other values and it, that's very very hard i find
0: Yeah i think that it, the, the, the difficult thing is to kind of express that empathy without looking like you are simply sympathetic to do mm. that, uh, you know, I, they, that's, I think empathy is the right word here, because you can look at a country like China uh, without abdicating your own values. You can still understand, you know, how it is that they could have arrived at, at uh, their ideas, their solutions, their, their, their values, their habits of mind, and so forth, uh, from the set of historical experiences mm. that they have, the economic yeah. realities. I, I, I don't think I could have said it better than you did. It was that's exactly right. So if you do write a book what language is it going to be in is it going to be in spanish and chinese or in or Oh, paint
2: in, in... it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No. No, um I think well if I you know I, th- I I well I have thought about this idea and I thought you know if I wanted to have like a wide audience it would be in English of course you know well, but I mean even even though I had a lot of limitations with the language I can maybe I can find help people to help me edit it but at the same time I think if I I, I would think my audience will be the Latin America. I, yeah. I when I think back, why will I write a book? You know, why do I want to write a book? If I want to write a book, who will it be for? You know, And I always think back to the people in Peru. I went to college there and uh, I went through a lot of things. And I think there isn't like the um, Latin American angle is very different from the from, you know, the other angle and also peru had like maoism you know had like this Ma- like there is a sort of like maoist the complex shining path, right yeah
0: right.
2: so so you know so for a lot of people you know I started worshiping mao and there was like the red books and the red little book you know it was very popular for during a time among like some young you know some young students and uh, like cultural evolution and things like that. and i want to i would like to present those from here right mm-hmm, what you know mm-hmm. like Maybe, so and I think that maybe I don't know if you know like the Anglo-Saxon will be interested in that, maybe not. You know, that so, sounds great.
0: Are you are you familiar with the book? There were two Spanish journalists who wrote a, a book on uh, sort of China's empire, far-flung empire internationally. Are you do you, do you know this? Yeah, I you mean I the one pens- that
2: went to Latin America and Africa? Yeah, exactly. You know, That's the, the one. Yeah, did I you, I didn't read it, but I know the book. Yeah, I know the people. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, did did that make it to Latin America? Did did people? Do you know if, if I if that think was... he
2: went to Spain a lot because the journalists were from Spain. Right, 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 right. I'm not sure whether he went to Latin America. Yeah. Okay.
0: Well, thanks thanks so much for coming in. It was just such a fascinating story that you have. Um, as you know, at the end of each show, we we make recommendations, and I, I know that you have a book here with you that you want to recommend. Uh, even though it's it's in French, is that right?
2: Um, actually, I I'm sure
1: we have a lot of French listeners. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> don't you know? Don't bring your American prejudices to the show. Yeah. No, I want to bring diversity. <laughs> no, actually, I
2: have several books, but I think one of them is uh, what, actually one of them that I'm reading. It's uh, it's in Chinese. It's the you know the biography or like of uh, Kang Sheng. You know, uh-huh. Kang he was, Xiong, yeah. like, The Kang secrets. The, the the security the, police. Exactly. Evil During black Mao, hand Scary Tang. man. There's it's called Kang Sheng Ping Zuan, hmm. and it's a very interesting book because it tells you about the life he had, you know how actually it helps you understand the Communist Party during the Cultural Revolution and all that. He was never purged. And, uh, and he
1: basically set up the the security services, the, the, what we think of as a secret place, mm. right? That was yes. his... He was the yes. barrier figure, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And many people, you know, made made comparisons of him and Zhuyong Kong. Mm. Uh-huh. And... Uh, but it's interesting how, you know, like maybe, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, there was... In some levels, there's, there wasn't much change. There, there hasn't, you know... So I think that's an interesting book to read, Kang Ping Juan. Uh-huh. You can find it... You in um, maybe Taobao mm-hmm. and um, and the other book I'm reading is uh, the Liu Xinwu Liu Xinwu was, is a writer who I think he he wrote his um, first short story on the by the end of the Cultural Revolution and it was it's considered like the, one of the representative uh, pieces on the
0: Cultural Revolution No, literature. on
2: the no yeah. on the um, Shanghan Wenxue Oh. The literature of the wound, mm-hmm. I think, and uh, scar, scar-, scar-, scar- yeah. literature. Yeah. Yeah. Scar- I think is where they render it in English. And yeah. he was like one of the first that started criticizing the cultural revolution and about you know this thing about criticizing the teachers and mm. things. It's called Panjuran, and he he's always been like he's been producing a lot. But then last year he he wrote his book, he published his book in France. It's called I Was Born in June Fourth, and it's his biography. And he talks a lot about. And he know, was
1: actually. He was born in June Fourth. He
2: was born in June Fourth, and this book is called I, "I was." And it was only published in France. And not in Chinese, and he's not accepting interviews about to talk about the book. Oh. But the book actually is about June Fourth and about, um, you know, this uh, about all the things that he went through the Cultural Revolution and about the last thirty years. Wow. And the censorship. It's uh, it's worth reading. I mean. But um, that maybe you can't buy on top en of that. <laughs> <en Francais>. no, <laughs> no, but maybe. I mean, I there's no Chinese. I've heard, like that. Maybe it's going to be published in Hong Kong. Uh-huh. And I hope that nothing happens to him after that.
1: So he lives here in Beijing still. He lives yeah. in Beijing? I hope He's too. Although. Based on the last six months, <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> the likelihood of something maybe, happening maybe to maybe him cut is quite this big. Part
2: off and not. Maybe because. Maybe no,
1: don't worry. Nobody listens to our podcast. So, two great recommendations from Sola.
0: Excellent. Well, will make sure to note those. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I'd
1: just like to recommend a podcast I think we've discussed on the show before called China Hang Up. Uh, Nicole Tsai, Eric Fish, Hudson Lockett, some of whom have had various things to do with uh, Seneca as like interning and stuff. Interns, yes. And they have uh, a, a show with uh, Robert Foyle Hunwick, who is a Beijing-based writer, who's uh, and, and they talk about uh, uh, the justice system and serial killers. And serial this, killers? The serial killers is also, I mean, I guess, I, I think Robert's f- first article on it was, in fact, for Dunway uh, a few years ago about Chinese serial killers. And it's a, quite a good conversation. Um, wow. So China Hang uh, Up, and I think it's hosted by your friend's... The Sino-American Rara Club. Uh, Project, uh, Project Ponyo. Yo hao once way. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yi <You> once way. <laughs>
0: Excellent. I'm going to go away from China uh, and uh, recommend a series of articles, a special edition of, of Guernica, guernicamag.com. Uh, they did a special issue this month called Class in America, The Fault Lines. There's a... a really good piece. I, I've just started to tuck into uh, into the whole series. Um, I, I read the first article that I read was by Margot uh, Jefferson. It's called Scenes from a Life in Negro Land. It's about growing up in Chicago. Uh, sh- she's daughter of a, a, a very well educated f- family but still living uh, under you know, sort of Jim Crow, well you know in the north, of course in Chicago, but still a very, very segregated Chicago. Uh, in the 1950s uh, highly recommend you read it there seems to be this sort of real interesting renaissance of 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 of, of discussion about uh race and class in america of late uh, i'm very glad to see that happening uh, sort it out man yeah, we're sort of, it out you guys did right no. uh, <laughs> sort of okay anyway his thanks so much for coming in
1: well thank you yes.
0: thank you his older jeremy i'll
1: see Fun. you next week man. oh yeah